Proverbs 24. It'll be verses 27 to the end. Um, don't know how much time we'll get on all the verses, but uh, my goal is to get through uh, the end of the chapter. Um, if you've ever been to a, a men's Bible study where we do Proverbs, it's not uncommon for us to do one verse. Uh, so maybe we'll do that tonight. We'll see. Whatever the Lord has for us. But Proverbs 24, starting at verse 27. says, Prepare thy work without, or outside, and make it fit for thyself in the field, and afterwards build thine house. Be not a witness against thy neighbor without a cause, and deceive not with thy lips. Say not... I will do so to him as he hath done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. I went by the field of the slothful, and by the vineyard of the man void of understanding. And lo, it was all grown over with thorns, and nettles had covered the face thereof. That's like needles and uh, brush and all that. And the stone wall thereof was broken down. Then I saw and considered it well. I looked upon it and received instruction. Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall thy poverty come as one that traveleth, and thy want or lack as an armed man. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. As we come to consider these verses, um, we're going to see, at least the way I'll lay them out, is that verse 27 is kind of a uh, standalone verse. Um, at least how, how we'll take it this evening. Then verses 28 and 29 uh, go together, and then verses 30 through 34 go together. Um, if you're looking at like the King James Version and you don't have all the punctuation, verses 30 to 34 can be uh, a little bit confusing, but in a modern translation you'll see that the slothful man is doing the speaking, uh, or he's the one who's basically having this reflection about a little sleep and a little slumber and whatnot. Um, but we'll get to that, Lord willing, in time. So, verse 27 says, uh, Prepare thy work without, and make it fit for thyself in the field, and afterwards build thine house. Mr. Lee, what translation do you have? Okay. Will you read verse 27 out of yours so I can have some other words in my head as I explain this? Prepare your work outside, get everything ready for yourself in the field, and after that, build your house. Right, okay. So you see, uh, it's a very straightforward uh, proverb. Um, it's the need to prepare before you build a house. And uh, it's important to know that the word house here doesn't just mean a four-walled structure. It's talking about the whole establishment where you live. It would even include... Um, uh, um, building that in pre- preparation for having a family, basically, right? So it's, it's kind of like uh, our, the way we use the word home, right? A home refers to not just a place, but where you are together as a family, right? You're home together. You're at home with your family. But this proverb, again, it, it holds out the need for us to prepare. Um, and he says that the preparations begin 
outside. That is to say, the preparations for a home are not uh, the works inside the home themselves, but they're uh, the works outside. And you'll notice this is especially referring to the man, but the principle can be applied um, uh, more broadly. Uh, Luke 14, uh, you don't have to flip there. I'll just read the one verse I have in mind. Uh, Luke 14, verse 28, it'll probably jog your memory as soon as I read it. It says, for which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it. So you don't just start in on a home, you count the cost, right? You prepare for that work of doing that. And you could, you know, draw an analogy and say, you know, big projects in general, you prepare for them. Like you don't just start in on it unprepared, uh, you make uh, preparations. Uh, there is a uh, reference to preparing for the ministry uh, that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 3. And I'm going to read a few verses there. Uh, but 1 Corinthians 3, starting at verse 10, Paul says that according to the grace of God given to me, then he says, as a wise master builder. So he refers to the ministry as building something. He says, I have laid the foundation and another buildeth thereon. Remember, he's talking in 1 Corinthians about how he labored in Corinth and then others came after him and built upon that foundation that he started. He says, but let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon for no other foundation can a man lay than that which is laid in Christ Jesus. So you have that, that imagery not just to a, a, a physical home, but to a, uh, a spiritual home as it relates to a man's work in uh, the ministry. Um, but I'm going to draw some, some parallels to, um, to this uh, by thinking about marriage and, and building a home. Take a very natural and straightforward reading of the text, mm-hmm. uh, because I think some would be tempted to see a verse like this and delay being married unnecessarily, right? You know how a lot of people say, um, you know, you, you see this couple that's been dating a while, and you say, what, what you waiting on, right? What you waiting on? They say, well, we're, not, we're not ready yet, right? And there's a sense in which that can be true, but there can also be an undue delaying of that, right? You can make your work in the field, your work outside, unnecessarily long, and have an undue delay of marriage, an undue delay of getting to work on that house or building that house. You can linger in the fields, as it were, uh, too long. Um, in the larger catechism, number 139, that is where we're told what the seventh commandment forbids. Now, the seventh commandment, remember, is thou shalt not commit adultery. So any explanation about like sexual sin or um, anything to do with purity or anything like that in the larger catechism is going to be addressed in relation to the seventh commandment. And I want to give you, uh, I wrote down three here. It's a long list in the larger catechism, of course, but I'm going to give you three that it draws out. Um, One of them is uh, prohibiting of a lawful marriage, right? Maybe you've met that father or that mother that uh, would, for some reason, not agree to let their child be married when they were certainly ready and equipped to be married, right? Maybe you know someone like that. That's forbidden, they say, 
in the seventh commandment. To use the imagery of Proverbs 24, 27, uh, the couple has prepared their work outside. They have made it fit. They've made the place fit for the home. They have even probably begun to build the home or pick out a home, right? They have everything lined up. But for some reason, the mom or dad or the grandpa, grandma, whoever is in charge says, no, not yet, right? And they could have a certain amount of wisdom, but we need to know that there is such a thing as prohibiting a lawful marriage, right? And thinking about it again with the imagery that's given in Proverbs 24, 27 can really uh, fill our minds with light, I think. Uh, Another one uh, is what is forbidden in the seventh commandment is entangling vows of single life. Entangling vows of single life. Now, somebody who knows a little bit about church history, what are they talking about there? Nuns, right? That kind of... Monks, right. Monastic living in general, whether it be for a woman or a man, right? Do what? Yeah. Well, in general, yeah. But Eastern Orthodox have those. Some weird Anglicans have them too. And even some even weirder Lutherans have those kind of setups too. Uh, but there is a certain vow that people have taken throughout history. And there's even uh, maybe people take them today too in less religious ways. But if you make a vow to pursue singleness and purity to your own detriment, right? I'm not going to be married because I'm going to pursue this type of purity. You could say that uh, in the modern feminist uh, movement where you have ideas like I don't need a man could be a variation of this, right? When in fact you very much do for some things, right? Especially for uh, purity implications. Um, And then the third thing would be, uh, I've already mentioned it briefly, but an undue delay of marriage. Now, I have a very inside track on this because Roxanne and I do weddings, right? Wedding photography, wedding videography. There are some couples that we meet that have been dating for six, seven, eight years, and they're in their 20s, right? Late 20s, early 30s. You're like, what are you doing? Right? What are you doing? Or they'll, they'll tell us, you know, we just got engaged. Uh, we just graduated from college. We're getting married in um, 48 months, two years. Right? But what are you doing? Right? Undue delay of marriage. Now, of course, there can be a due delay of marriage right, to finish some preparations and whatnot. But if you build the house, if you've got this work done in the field, if you've made all the preparations, why wait to move in the house? Right? We're not gypsies. We don't have to let the house be cleared of spirits or anything like that. Or put, what do they put on the windows, the door? Aluminum foil and all that stuff. (laughs) Y'all ever rode through Gypsy Town? It's quite the experience over in North Augusta. Um, But that addresses, uh, this proverb is connected to that. Um, And I want to say as a a positive implication that parents, uh, you need to prep your children um, for the world that they are stepping into but also prep them for marriage. And I'm going to try to address both of those, right? Um, Things are very different financially, and they're only going to get more different, more weird, and more uh, twisted financially, right? We can't let our children walk blind into those things, right? We can't let our grandchildren walk blind into those things. Like uh, When Roxanne and I got married... It was very easy 
Very easy. Right? We decided to get engaged. We got married six months after we got engaged. Her parents had a home on their farm that they helped us uh, put back into shape so we could move into, and boom, we were there. Right? But today, right? I mean, that even then, when we got married in 2011, that was kind of rare to have those kind of circumstances. But today, like just to buy a house, do you know the median mortgage payment in Aiken County, according to Andrew, unless I misunderstood him, but the median mortgage payment in Aiken County on new construction is $2,700. How much? $2,700. That's just Aiken, right? And Aiken is... I mean, it's higher for certain areas in South Carolina, but it's not high nationally, right? Um, and just imagine, you know, your, your children trying to walk into that without being prepared, right? They'll have to rent for 15 years. Not that there's ultimately anything wrong with renting, but you're just constantly shooting yourself in the foot renting. As my dad says, I can say this among adults, uh, pissing money away. It just is, right? That's what renting is. And some people can't help it. Right? Don't, don't feel guilty about it. That's not what I'm saying. But just in general, you want to prepare your kids for, for living and thinking in that type of world. But also, something that I've seen um, as a, a minister and you know, someone who's been married long enough, most people don't prep their kids to be married. Right? They just prep them as individuals to make right decisions. And what I mean prepping your children to be married is preparing your daughters to be wives and mothers. <clears throat> preparing your sons to be husbands and fathers. Because if you've been married for more than five minutes, you know how important that is, right? Not that you're just prepared to be a decent person, because that'll, that'll get you, you know, maybe a year in marriage. But when you start working out what's going to be done in the home who needs to be doing this? Who's going to be assigned that? How dad's going to do this? How mom's going to do that? And you realize, like, I had 18 years, 20 years, you know, to prepare my child for this. And how, how have I done is a question that we need to ask. Uh, so there's a balance that needs to be struck with that. Like, you don't want to scare your kids into thinking uh, that they shouldn't get married. I've seen that um, with, um, and I understand the impulse because of things like divorce. Um, I've had friends that were afraid to get married because their parents were divorced uh, and they saw all the turmoil that that brings in the family. I understand that, right? But we had to be uh, balanced about these kinds of things, knowing the world that we're stepping into, with, especially with things like divorce becoming more and more common. Because the thing is that the world is feeding the, the enemy's fire, as it were, because the enemy has been building a fire since the Garden of Eden to discredit marriage and overthrow the roles of man and woman. Right? And the enemy is just feeding that fire. And anything we can do to put that out and get our kids to have a proper view and preparation for marriage is only going to uh, help them. It's going to teach them what it is to prepare their work outside and then afterwards build that house, that home, that family uh, together. Notice the word, the very first word, prepare, right? That goes to everyone who is going to be contributing to this house. All right? Then in verses 28 through <clears throat> 29, Be not a witness against thy neighbor without a cause. Deceive not with thy lips. Say not, I will do so to him as he hath done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. Right, so the very obvious thing, right out the get-go, 
is that uh, you can be a witness against your neighbor if there is a cause, right? So maybe you know of a legal situation or, or maybe even like a, uh, a church court situation where you've had been called in for church discipline or hear of something like that. There can be a cause where you have to bear witness against your neighbor, right? Where you have to speak where maybe they don't want you to speak, right? Where you know something that you are obligated to share, um, and it's not always wrong, or it's not ever wrong to, to share that as long as there is a cause. But notice he says, deceive not with your lips, right? Because we'll go into these situations, we're tempted to go into these situations without a cause, and normally when we do that, sinning from the get-go, we're going to be tempted to sin even more, right? You can think about the, the big court cases that, that are broadcast on television and whatnot, where these star witnesses are brought in that most people probably know that they're not telling the truth, right? They, from the get-go, are testifying without a cause, right? So what do they do? They lie, upon lie, upon lie, right? And then he warns of, uh, in verse 29, about taking judgment or vengeance in our own hands. You know, the verse, of course, in, in Romans, uh, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, right? This, this warning that we are uh, given here. And uh, again, draw on the first half of verse 28. Don't be a witness without a cause, but if there is a cause, even against your neighbor, you should be willing to uh, speak. Um, but I'm going to draw something on what Bridges says. I'm going to start with the larger catechism. He doesn't reference that. He's Anglican. Why would he do that? Um, but in larger catechism 144, <clears throat> which is the duties required in the ninth commandment, and it's, uh, it addresses um, basically when you're called to be a witness, right? Because the ninth commandment is thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor, right? Don't lie, basically. But it's no coincidence that the term there is witness, right? Because the Ten Commandments were, were written, given especially in a time when God was giving all these civil laws to, to Israel. So the word witness would have certainly stirred in their minds very uh, powerfully. But they say that the duties required in the Ninth Commandment, right? So the commandment is negative. Don't lie. So the positive implication is tell the truth. All right, so what they say is required is to, from the heart, sincerely, freely, clearly, and fully speaking the truth, and only the truth, in matters of judgment and justice, and in all other things whatsoever. All right, so that willingness to speak the truth when it's a matter of judgment and justice and let me say this too, don't, don't think that this only begins to apply to you if you ever enter a courtroom as a witness. This is in common conversation when we're tempted to things like gossip, right? When we're talking about other people, right? My, my rule about gossip, and I, I think it's uh, um, a, a pretty good one, that it's only gossip if you wouldn't say it to their face, right? Maybe, you know, you're an arrogant fighter and you would say something you shouldn't say to their face. So that rule could be bent a little bit. But in general, right, I think that's a safe rule. Um, so he says, uh, a charitable esteem of our neighbors, uh, a loving, a desiring, and rejoicing in their good name, 
And then he brings out, or they bring out something here that Bridges does too, and I'm going to get to it in just a second. But he says, a sor- they say, I'm sorry, a sorrowing for and a covering of their infirmities. And they draw on this idea, they do it in a few more words, but they're drawing on this idea that when you hear something about someone who is your neighbor, someone whom you know, right, that you should be unwilling to receive a negative report about them unless you know it without a doubt to be true, right? And that really gives you to the root of what gossip is too, right? Gossip is that conversation where there's an eagerness to receive a negative report, whether it's true or not. It's just spicy. It's good, right? But they say that there's also to be a defending of their innocency, right? Now, this is uh, especially hard to do for people who... Uh, readily transgress us, but it's required of us nonetheless that we are to defend their innocency if they are indeed innocent. And then the last bit, to have a love and care of our own good name and to defend it when need requireth. Right? And that's important to say because so many people um, take verses uh, like in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, that the meek uh, are blessed and all those things. People sadly relate meekness to being a doormat, right? That you just let people run all over you, and if they say something bad, don't ever worry about correcting them or anything like that. But there's a, an implication in the ninth commandment. Not only are you not supposed to bear false witness against other people, that when the opportunity presents itself, you should not let other people bear false witness against you. Right? You should defend yourself. And be willing to do that. Prime example of it, 2 Corinthians. Paul's entire letter of 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians is him defending himself. Him defending his apostolic ministry and proving why he was able and called by the Lord to do what he was doing. Um, to get a little bit on Bridges here, I'm just going to read a, a little bit. <clears throat> he says, he brings up this idea that... Um, how we as Christians can be called to bear witness against someone and we begin to do it in a non-Christian way, right? Uh, even when we're telling the truth, right? That, that we get excited to be able to bear witness against someone. He says we are indulging in personal resentment. He said it's natural to say, though only in the heart, I will do as he has done to me. So think about you know, someone doing you wrong, and you have an opportunity to speak about how they've done you wrong, right? As if taking vengeance was in your hands. Now, you can tell the truth in a way that you don't have that mindset, but he warns against it. And he says, far sweeter will be the recollection of injuries forgotten than revenged. Listen to that. Far sweeter will be the recollection or memory of injuries forgotten, sins against you, than revenged. And he says, grace alone can enable us to, quote, forgive from the heart, as we know the Lord commands us. And he says, yet too often its exercise is so feebly cherished that natural feelings gain the ascendancy, meaning that we forget how glorious forgiveness is and we give way to natural, that is sinful, feelings. He says, if there be not an actual recompense of evil, there is merely a negative obedience to the rule, a refraining from the ebullition rather than an active exercise of the opposite principle. 
Meaning, again, you're taking joy in the opportunity to bear witness against them rather than forgiving them from the heart and speaking in humility. And he gives this quote. <clears throat> this will be the last bit I read here. He gives this quote at the very end, which I've seen something like it attributed uh, to many writers, especially Puritans. Uh, so he's probably ripping this from somebody um, or paraphrasing. And he says, Humility and tenderness... Mark, the self-knowing Christian, who forgives himself little, but his neighbor much. I'm going to say that again. Humility and tenderness mark the self-knowing Christian, who forgives himself little, but his neighbor much. And that is, to paraphrase again, be harder on yourself than you are other people. And there's a great humility and tenderness that, that marks that. Um, just the, to draw on the idea of forgiveness. Um, I think I mentioned this to y'all, or I mentioned it in a sermon recently, but the very end of Matthew chapter 5, where <clears throat> Jesus says, you've heard it said, um, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, so that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans, the most base sinners, a base sinners, uh, do the same. He says, if you salute your brethren only... What do you do more than others? Do not even the publicans do this. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which in heaven is perfect. And the analogy that's being drawn there is not just to prove yourself to be children of the Father, but because children are like the Father, you're imitating God's character when you forgive. You're imitating God's character. Who has sinned more against God than his people? None. But he loves and forgives uh, nonetheless. Um, We have about 10 minutes left. We can work through verses 30 to 34 if y'all want. But if you have anything you wanted to say or talk about on uh, the first three verses, now's the time to do that. Yes, ma'am. I have a Okay. Yeah, the larger catechism says to, to speak the truth from the heart sincerely, freely, clearly, and fully. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, speaking the truth and only the truth. Mm-hmm. Very good.
Mm-hmm. But um, with the way that you were explaining it with verse 28 as well, with uh, not giving way to gossip and being willing to hear someone else bring lies against someone else, it's also from yourself. Mm. Um, you know, the modern man oftentimes uh, is ridden with, you know, hermeneutic of suspicion, where we kind of view everybody as out to get us with like some type of pernicious mm-hmm. kind of, uh, you know, objective in mm-hmm. mind, where they are trying to use you for some other higher end in their own goals, essentially. Um, you know, but, you know, we ought to not even let ourselves lie to ourselves. Mm-hmm. No, that's, uh, you reminded me of, um, I think I preached on it when I preached through, is either First Peter or First John, um, just this idea about what it really means to love and be known in the church especially, right? Because that hermeneutic of suspicion, you say, um, as people call it, we view people, and even sadly our brothers and sisters in Christ, with uh, way too much suspicion, right? There's a difference in wisdom and suspicion, right? I'm not saying, you know, act like uh, things that have happened have never happened. That's not the point. But that so many people, uh, you know, block themselves off from true fellowship with the body or um, befriending someone that maybe they wouldn't normally befriend or something like that in the church uh, because of that very idea, because you have um, the power of the flesh still raging in you, and you concoct, I don't know if y'all have ever done this, but you, you concoct this whole narrative about people, and you've never even really talked to them. All right? Or it's just one exchange with them, and you think you know them. right? And you've got them all figured out. You know what all their intentions are. You know why they did this, where they go when they do that, who they really mean when they say this, right? those kind of things. And, um, it starts with that very idea that you have to address it first here, even before you even think about receiving it from others. Yeah, it's like, uh, you know, Proverbs 18 17, where it talks about, you know, the, the first one to plead his case costs him right until the man who comes to the So in a very similar vein, is, but again, pertaining to how we perceive others. You know, it's kind of like, I mean, like exactly what you're saying, you know, you think about the accounting, like, say, the fellowship of the ring, right? Where Gandalf is coming to kind of like tell uh, Bilbo that he needs to leave the ring, you know, behind for Frodo. And Bilbo keeps trying to take it himself. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, he basically starts to kind of taking this idea of, well, you just want it for yourself. You just want his power all for your own. Mm-hmm. And Gandalf is like, stop, I'm not trying to rob you. Yeah. I'm trying to help you. Yeah. You know, we kind of, it's kind of like viewing the, the, the surgeon's scalpel as if it's something that's damaging Yes, it's cutting you open, but it's for your own benefit, yeah. for the better of your health. No, that's good. And uh, you could even, I'll come to you in a second, but well, I want to say this while you got my mind working. Um, in the, the book of Hebrews, where it talks about the word of God being sharper than any two-edged sword, uh, and it pierces uh, to the joints and marrow, right, all the way down to the bone, basically. But the imagery there is the, the imagery of sacrifice, Right? Because the sacrifices in the Old Testament were, were, were drawn open 
and skinned and filleted and all those things that, that were done to them by a two-edged knife, right? A two-edged sword. And that is what God comes to do to us with his word. Right? He comes to, to open us, right? To, to tear us asunder, as it were, so that we can then be presented as those uh, living sacrifices so that, you know, you could apply the, the hermeneutic of suspicion even to the pulpit, right? Now, I mean, whoever's preaching, right? It, it doesn't matter. But just like that it could affect the way that you view the church, right? You should come with that open willingness to hear from God, knowing that he has uh, way better good for you than Gandalf ever had for Bilbo in mind, right? Uh, but yeah, Bo? Good. First Corinthians 13, <clears throat> one of my pet peeves, especially since I get to be at a lot of wedding, weddings, is uh, people not using Scripture correctly in their wedding services. Happens all the time. Um, now, First Corinthians 13, yes and amen. Let's read that uh, in our marriage services if, if that's what you know, one of the passages you want to read. Um, encouraging Christian wife, Christian uh, husband to to view themselves rightly, but but don't don't let yourself off the hook with First Corinthians thirteen. That's that's not just a call for husband and wife, right? Paul is not dress, addressing natural relations in First Corinthians thirteen. He's talking about in the body, right? That love that does not keep a record of wrongs, that love that is always full of of patience and charity, the love that's full of love, right? Uh, is addressed to the Christians as a congregation. Yes and amen, we should pursue that in our marriages. But it's a heavenly love that he's speaking of, one that's known in the kingdom of God and is to be expressed and practiced in the church under this way of the Spirit. So thank you for jogging my memory on that. But anything else? <clears throat> yes, ma'am. No, that's good. And, and this is especially important on the Lord's Day because uh, if you've, again, been a Christian for more than five minutes, you know that the devil does double duty on Sundays, right? So anything he can do to throw off your family relations uh, and then your um, heavenly fellowship at church, he's going to do it, right? So those things that you know would ordinarily maybe be a pebble in your shoe, 
or an annoying thing to you about a person, especially on Sundays, just overlook it, right? Be patient uh, with people. Um, I, I think I, I sent this quote to a few of my friends this week, but um, <clears throat> I heard it. These people were talking about the Sabbath and how we so often speak so negatively about the church or somebody in the church uh, around our children. And they were warning um, against uh, or, or warning about the danger of that, especially on Sundays, uh, because every Sunday is like a honeymoon between Christ and his bride. And could you imagine if you walked up to a, a normal man on his honeymoon and tried to say something negative about his bride? How much more so the Lord Jesus, right? Just to be cautious and all that. That doesn't mean do it the other six days, but be especially cautious on the Lord's day because that's when Christ really communes with his bride. So, all right, well, let's close in prayer. We're uh, creeping a little bit past seven. I want to get you all out of here as close to the time, I promise, as possible.